conditions on the fob were horrific. I mean, I tell people to this day, it was the most horrific place I've ever been in my life. Uh, hopefully I never have to experience that again. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. Abu Ghraib. Yes, I'll say it again. Abu Ghraib. You remember those pictures? The graphic images of inmates tortured and abused by U.S. service members in Iraq. Photos that sparked domestic and international outrage and condemnation back in 2003. Abu Ghraib wasn't just a prison. It was also the forward operating base in Anbar province for U.S. operations there. Major Bill Edwards and Lieutenant Colonel Bob Walters of the 165th Military Intelligence Battalion were given the near-impossible task of setting up and then improving discipline issues at the site. They've recently published a candid first-hand account of their time there, entitled Inside Abu Ghraib, Memoirs of Two U.S. Military Intelligence Officers. Rain's Executive Director of Safety and Security, Brian Lynch, recently spoke to Bill Edwards about his experiences. Bill, welcome to the broadcast. We're going to be talking about your recent book, Inside Abu Ghraib. And uh, Bill, great to have you on the podcast. Thanks a lot, Brian. It's great to be here. I'm actually honored to, to actually do this podcast with you. It's, um, I'm excited as well. Thanks. Well, first of all, I want to thank you for your service to, the, to your country, to our country. This book really highlights, I think, a couple of things. Uh, number one, the types of issues that had to be overcome uh, during Operation Iraqi Freedom, one which you highlight in the book, as well as the impact of families. Uh, and, and I'd like to get into all of that with you as we move through this. But let's start, Bill. Uh, a little bit with your uh, football career and your entry into the service. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't know if it's a if it was a career, uh, but it was uh, it was it was my passion as a as a young man. Uh, I had I had started playing uh, competitive football at about the age of six, and um, made my way all the way through high school, and then played in some. Uh, played for some college teams, had some opportunities to continue um, into a Division One school, uh, but decided at that point that my calling was the Army. Uh, so I um, went to the ROTC detachment at San Diego State University and and asked about getting um, into their program. And you went from obviously one team with the mission to another team with the mission. And uh, I, I thought kind of an interesting comment uh, by the physician when you went for your physical. Can you can you relay that to the folks? <laughs> yeah, that was uh, that was uh, the eye opening moment where I realized I was never going to be an NFL player. Um, I was uh, a freshman reporting into uh, what was our uh, in you know our entry level our entry week um, for the summer training camp. And you, every freshman goes through a physical uh, with the team doctor. And I uh, was waiting in the lobby and they called me in to get my physical. And the doctor said, um, are you the new kicker? And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you're, you're not the kicker, you're, you're way too small to be playing in this league. <laughs> and, I, and I think the comment that he made, which is uh, quite enlightening, is, you know, we've got to put some weight on you or you're going to get killed. They actually did after that first 
season, I, you know, I actually grew into the position. The position I was playing was wide receiver. I was a, I was a receiver. Um, I wasn't a speedy receiver. I was more of a possession receiver. I could get, you know, 10 yards if we needed 10 yards. And, um, and that's actually uh, how I was recruited later on a few years later. Uh, the one op- opportunity I actually turned down. Well, and then you go to San Diego State University, and I think there were some uh, trailers that had a sign on it about ROTC. Do I have that right? Yeah, it's a it's kind of an interesting story. Um, I was sort of like all all uh, young people at that age, and you're trying to figure out what you want to do and the path you want to take, and I just happened to be walking by these uh, temporary trailers. They were pretty common in the in the 70s and 80s, you know, to use as classroom space or meeting space or offices um, in lieu of like formal buildings. And on the on the uh, this trailer, there was a sign that said uh, Army ROTC. So I said, oh, you know, I'll, I'll just I'll go in here and and ask some questions about what this is all about in this program. Um, and that's where I met a dear friend of mine. Uh, to this day, Captain Pete Ash, um, now physician, MD, Dr. Pete Ash, uh, who uh, brought me into the program and, and, and the rest is history. Yeah, that's a great story. And then um, that's around 1987. And then you get assigned to Berlin, which was uh, for you a, a great assignment because uh, what happened in Berlin in 1990, Bill? Well, yeah, it was a great assignment. It, um, one of the one of actually my my if if I ever get asked what's my claim to fame, uh, my claim to fame is I was the last uh, armor officer, U.S. Army officer assigned to the Berlin Brigade before we cased the colors in 1992. So I huh. the 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 bad part <laughs> about that is is that. I was the junior lieutenant the entire time I was there, and that's never good. And so, but in 1990, um, I was really blessed and fortunate to meet Dana, who I eventually married, and we've been married for the last 30 years. So let's fast forward up to 9-11, uh, the uh, terror attacks that occurred. I believe you were at the University of Tennessee you were training some reserve officer, uh, reserve army training corps cadets, and uh, can you take us through that and, and how you found out and, and what your initial thoughts were? Yeah, that was a that was a really interesting day. Um, I was uh, an ROTC instructor at this time. This was this was a, a position that I I took after I had company command in the Fourth Infantry Division. Um, what what we were doing in those days, once you came out of company command, you had a couple of options to go to the training centers to impart the knowledge you had on the next generation of leaders. And so I decided to take this position at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville. And the interesting part about the decision was uh, my assignments offer, officer at uh, at the um, what, what was called Human Resources Command at the time or PERSCOM. He, he sent me a list of schools to choose from. There were, you know, various ROTC um, openings across the country. And I simply just picked the best football school. So that's why I ended up at the University of Tennessee. Um, they were, they were, they happened to be very good in the SEC at that time. And I was a huge football fan. So I thought it would be great to to go there and, and teach and, and also get to, 
to see SEC football up front. So um, that's how I ended up at the University of Tennessee. And then uh, I was an, I was actually the recruiter and the physical training instructor at, at the school in our program. So I had the students every morning at 6 a.m. for PT. Um, and then the rest of my time was uh, just recruiting and bringing bringing more students into the program. So on 9-11, I was at work. I was at the school. Um, I was actually with um, several cadets and we were were watching um, an old TV that had been donated to the the program. And we just were sort of in shock as we were watching these events take shape. And I turned around to these students. They were they were still students at the time. And I said, your your lives have just changed. And and they looked at me and they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, look, this is an attack on our country and you are all getting ready to be lieutenants in the army. Um, So, you know, you've got to be prepared mentally to deploy at this point. And. And as as it turns out, we all know that that's what happened. And those specific cadets that I was with at the time, um, they they all went on to serve multiple tours in combat. And some are are leading are in very senior leadership positions today, which makes me feel old. But they are. (laughs) So as we all know, uh, fast forward timeline here, March to May 2003, the U.S. leads a coalition which invaded Iraq, dubbed Operation Iraqi Freedom One, uh, and then you join General Walters' battalion. I think at the time he was a lieutenant colonel in June of 2003. Can you take us through those events uh, briefly, Bill, about that assignment leading up to meeting uh, General Walters, Lieutenant Colonel Walters at the time? Yeah, sure. Um, so it was um, I was a student at the Command and General Staff College, um, which is at Fort Leavenworth. It's where all um, normally all the majors in the Army and other services go there for uh, professional development and education, further education. Um, and we were in school and obviously all of all of this was taking shape. And uh, our instructors came to us and some of the senior leaders at the school and said, look, um, you, you know, you may get pulled out of out of school early to join units um, that are are heading to the to the Middle East, and and so we were all uh, preparing mentally. Uh, but at this time, I had been in the army um, over. I think I was at thirteen years or fourteen years in the army, so I was fairly fairly senior at that time, and um, and so it was it was part of life, you know, for for me and my family at that point. So getting those type of uh, instructions or orders was, wasn't overly shocking. So basically what we were trying to do was figure out where we were going. And um, I had initially been, been assigned to a different brigade uh, while I was at school. And um, uh, as we, as we finished the coursework and and graduated uh, in, in the May timeframe of, of 03, uh, I was in a in a hotel in Kansas City waiting to to fly myself and my family to Germany when I got an email saying, um, 
you know, you have been diverted and you're going to now be the executive officer for the 165th uh, Tactical Exploitation Battalion. It was an, an MI battalion in in uh, the 205th MI Brigade under 5th Corps. And this was a great, this was a great assignment. I mean, this was uh, just pure uh, good luck. And I found out later that Bob had actually picked me um, to come and be his executive officer. He was the commander of the battalion at the time. And then the rest is history. I, I ended up getting to Germany. Um, I got Dana and, and my children settled for in a couple days, but she actually ended up doing all the work. And the next thing I knew, I was on a, I was on an aircraft uh, headed for Baghdad International Airport is, is, is where I ended up. And, and then the story of, of OIF-1 begins for me at that point. And I believe the initial assignment was in Balad, if, uh, if, that's, if that's right. And uh, you, you were really not expected to go and be uh, with the change of orders of change of mission to Abu Ghraib. Is that correct? Well, the, the unit, um, the 165th, after the initial invasion, had uh, stopped in Balad, and that's where they set up the headquarters. So Balad was the battalion headquarters. Um, Abu Ghraib wasn't on our radar. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't even in our mission set, um, and we'll get to that, I think, a little later in this conversation, but um, that mission, change of mission we got for Abu Ghraib was the result of a strategic uh, issue that was taking shape at that um, facility. Yeah, so uh, before we get into the uh, change of mission to Abu Ghraib, let's talk a little bit, Bill, about the impact to families when the soldier is deployed in wartime. And uh, this was a combat tra uh, uh, transfer to Iraq, right? We're in... Uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom One. Uh, you really didn't get to set up the home, uh, and uh, can you take us a little bit through that about what, what the impact that transfer and that deployment has on a family? Yeah, absolutely. This is, I, I think, this is probably uh, one of the strongest portions of this book, and it's it just needs to be highlighted. In, is one of the reasons why we. We wanted our, our wives and daughters to tell their stories, but the Army family, uh, by far, it's it has to be a strong unit. Um, and in my case, I was completely blessed uh, with Dana as my wife, and then and two two young girls at the time, uh, Madeline and Elise. But this this situation was even more unique than the normal military family situation. One. Uh, I was deploying to combat. I was deploying to a unit that was in combat. Um, it was a, a unit that had a long-range surveillance mission, uh, which is an infantry mission, and it also had a um, intelligence mission. So it was a very complex organization, and we were operating. Uh, this organization was operating all over the country uh, in in a decentralized manner. Uh, but then back to the family, the family was actually the our families were actually living in Germany. So they weren't even in the U.S. with the normal support structure. They were in Germany and then trying to figure out how to just do the basics in a foreign country while your your spouse is deployed. 
is very challenging and you have to be a strong person to do that and your children have to be resilient um and and that right there sets the conditions for how important it is to understand the strength of the military family as it pertains to supporting not only the the spouse that's in the service but the entire structure of our of our army um it's it is truly a part of our culture that just needs to be recognized and understood uh first of all the book is a great read and it really talks about what you and others in the um unit that you were in but others uh in in the iraqi theater of operations went through but it also really uh talks about the impact of the family and and i thought that was extremely powerful uh, as you mentioned um so let me let me go back to uh the change of mission to abu Ghraib, and a lot of folks uh remember that it was a prison but it was also a forward operating base. Can you talk a little bit about that and about the difference uh, of what your unit did versus maybe what the military police unit did? So, like I said in the earlier, you know, I, I didn't even know where Abu Ghraib was on the map. Um, so we were we were again in Balad. Um, we were conducting our operational missions out of out of um, LSA Anaconda, which was the basically the airfield at Balad. Um, and then, um, you know, we got a change of mission uh, to move to Abu Ghraib. And as I tell the story in the book, um, the change of mission was fix it. And, you know, for a seasoned or a, a long-term military officer, that's not a, a real mission. The real mission normally comes with task and purpose. Um, and then you can, you can go from there to, to establish the, the standards um, and the conditions that you want to operate in. So I had to reiterate with, with my friend in Baghdad. I said, so you're telling me the mission is to fix it. What does that mean? And he's like, Bill, I, you just need to fix it. Get down there and do an assessment and then, and then get it, uh, get it straight, straightened out. So, um, Abu Ghraib was a prison. It, it was a Saddam Hussein prison facility I believe it was built in the 50s. Um, it was an execution facility. So the gallows and all of all of those uh, really horrible things existed on that facility. But it was also in this time a detainment facility uh, for uh, the U.S. military in Iraq at the time. Um, for us, um, we found out later, I mean, there was it was a huge strategic blunder by the by the unit that was currently on that uh, fob and and that's in the news and everyone's well aware of Abu Ghraib from that perspective but when we got the mission our mission was to move our battalion down there and establish discipline standards and accountability and also run operations out of Abu Ghraib in the form of fob operations so forward operating base uh, operations. So Abu Ghraib was technically a detainment facility, but it was also a forward operating base for our unit. And, and Bill, you touched on uh, the conditions uh, that you found when you arrived, uh, and, and, and I'd like to get into that. But but the but the operating base, uh, and I want you to talk about this later. Is uh, you had long range surveillance teams, 
and uh, they were inserted, they, they hid, they watched, they reported back. And I want you to talk a little bit about how important they were to the intelligence gathering mission. But before we do that, I, I think it's really uh, important and interesting that you convey what the status was, the pulse check, when you first arrived. What did you see from the standpoint of military discipline? Yeah, this is a, this is a great point. Um... So after the call uh, that we took, or I took the call uh, in Balad to, again, go fix Abu Ghraib, uh, 20, less than 24 hours later, um, we were uh, conducting a leader's reconnaissance down to, from Balad to Abu Ghraib to assess the conditions and then really establish a plan on, on how we were going to execute this, this mission order we were given. So, you know, think in terms of that night, uh, we were organizing our combat patrols in Balad. We were telling people, hey, look, we've got to change a mission. We need to do a leader's reconnaissance. And the leadership, to include myself and Bob and our operations officer and our battalion sergeant major, all the key leaders and uh, a couple of the company commanders, uh, you know, really all the key leaders that needed to, to see what this place was about, we established a couple of combat patrols and we left uh, Balad and made the, made the combat patrol movement um, down to Abu Ghraib. And when we rolled on to Abu Ghraib, my initial sense was it, there was no discipline, there was no standards and there was no accountability at all. Um, there was no functioning entry control point. Um, it, the, the conditions on the FOB were horrific. I mean, I tell people to this day, it was the most horrific place I've ever been in my life. Uh, hopefully I never, you know, have to experience that again. Uh, but we had a daunting task at that point. And when we, um, when we actually got onto Abu Ghraib that, that next day, our non-commissioned officers who are or by the way, were the greatest in the army. I, I can't give them enough credit. Um, and I'm still in contact with many of them today. Uh, they, they started immediately assessing the, the FOB perimeter, um, the, the conditions of weapons, uh, the security of the FOB. And then by the end of that day, we were, we were huddled around uh, Bob's uh, Humvee truck you know, talking about, okay, here's, here's our plan. Here's how we're going to execute this, this mission. Um, but for us, it was just, it was just shocking to, to even see the conditions of that, that facility. Uh, shocking, as you mentioned, uh, but probably um, not surprising uh, that, that there were some issues there based upon what you found. And I think you made a comment in the book Leadership failure equals mission failure, uh, and and I think you know that that's probably a, a pretty good example of that, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, Bob Bob Walters was our battalion commander, and uh, you know he was, I think, and still is. I admire him greatly, but the epitome of of leading us at that point, and then um, really the 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 four legs of the chair at the leadership level were myself. Uh, the the battalion uh, operations officer and then the command sergeant major, and so the four of us 
you know, I talk about this a lot now, but we were put into a position where we were going to have to lead through adversity. Um, and it was just the right team to do it. And just great human beings that understood what needed to be done. Um, completely professional, such a disciplined organization ourselves with our non-commissioned officers led by our Sergeant Major and our and our, our first sergeants and our platoon sergeants and our company commanders. And because a, a leadership is not about one person, leadership is about the team. And we had a good team. And I think the Army made the right decision to move us down there to, as I said earlier, fix that situation. We'll get back to our conversation in just a moment. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. To learn more about RAIN, go to rainnetwork.com slash join to become a member today. And you were operating in that area. You had a mission. And can you talk about the... Um, the the threat to life that occurred on a routine basis there, both from mortar and rocket attacks, and how that impacted operations. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this was this was a a target of um, of opportunity. It was it was a place that received mortar and rocket fire on a daily basis, sometimes more than once a day. Uh, it wasn't uncommon for small arms fire. To, to take place uh, outside of the FOB and then, of, of course, directed towards the FOB. Um, so we were constantly under that um, uh, type of environment. And, you know, one of the things I, I tell people is there are there are on Abu Ghraib at the time, there were hard uh, there were buildings, right? There were there were prison facilities. There was a textile factory. There were hard stand facilities. And we we stayed and operated out of those facilities. But when we left those facilities, which was all the time, um, we had to be in our full combat equipment. We had to have our body armor on or, or our flak vest at the time. And we had to have our helmet on. Um, there was it, it was a situation where we never knew when the next rocket or mortar or small arms or RPG was going to come over the over the perimeter walls. And so living in that type of environment, um, you know, I hate to say it, you, you sort of get used to it, but you always have to have your senses with you uh, because you just never know what's going to happen. And, and frankly, um, you know, at the time, the detainees on that FOB, they were in tents, in tents uh, all around the, uh, the grounds of that FOB. So it was... It was actually even even uh, dangerous for them, uh, and it and it was um, you know an environment that didn't change the entire time we were there. Can you talk a little bit uh, and paint the picture of what living conditions were like when you first arrived there for the average soldier? Just to paint that for our listeners. Yeah, so if you can think of the most austere camping or uh, out outdoors environment you've ever been in with literally no services, but also the filth of, of, um, of this specific place. It was, it was, it was just like I said earlier, it was horrific. Uh, you know, we, 
we didn't have um, latrine facilities. We didn't have the ability to shower. Um, we didn't have running water. Um, all of that we had to bring in and build build ourselves. So basically, we were living, and and we were capable of doing that in a in what we call a field environment in the army, but. In this instance, the infrastructure wasn't supported at all. So I give the great example of we had we had a couple of uh, Iraqi contractors that would would work for us and help us, um, you know, get some things done that we needed to get done from an infrastructure perspective. But um, my S4 at the time, uh, the S4 is the term for the logistics officer in the battalion, was a was a guy named Romeo Qureshi, and we highlight him in the book. Because he was such a fantastic officer, he he could just see what needed to be done, and then he could get it done. and And it was all about improving the life conditions for our battalion and and our soldiers while we were there. Um, so, the first thing, one of the first things we did was we built plywood um, showers, and we used our Iraqi contractors to. To help us build those uh, showers, and we were pumping the water out of out of what we call water buffaloes with little pumps to bring in a you know, to bring in a shower capability. But they were they were so austere. You you know you had to wear some sort of shoes while you were in there because the mud was so so thick in this part of the uh, of the country, and it was it was just literally the most austere conditions you can imagine. In fact, one of the improvements we we were making later on was just laying gravel all over the fob so that we could keep the mud and dust down. But when you live in that type of environment, it also promotes disease. And so we had to be very careful with soldiers getting sick and trying to keep everyone as healthy as possible. Um, and so it was a struggle from that perspective. So not only were we operating under the conditions of constant fire, uh, indirect fire and small arms fire, et cetera, but we we're also fighting the elements and fighting the conditions of hygiene. Um, and so you could, you know, some of the pictures you see in the book sort of highlight how that facility looked. Uh, but it, 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 to say the least, it wasn't ideal. So not only were the living conditions less than ideal, but uh, the, the group, including yourself, were under rocket and mortar attack on a continual basis. Look, at I, I know that you're the type of guy that, that probably won't blow his own horn. But in the book, you noted you did a couple of things like establishing the Internet Cafe for the soldiers, um, up armoring vehicles. Uh, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about that. That was in the early stages uh, of, of the IEDs and some of the other uh, items that were occurring. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and maybe a little bit of the frustration around that, too, Bill? Well, you know, during this time, I mean, the the army, you know, when we deployed into Iraq, to Iraq, <laughs> we were completely uh, capable of destroying the the Iraqi army. And I think if if you look into history, I think our mission we completed the mission in, in something like seventeen days. Um, we we were a trained army. We could move. We could shoot. We could communicate, and um, you know, very good at our at our craft. Um, when we went into Iraq, when when the mission changed in the summer of '03, uh, when we we uh, 
faced our first what was what we learned later was called the IED, the entire dynamics of the of the battlefield changed. And so we had to to make that change as well. Um, one of the things that I noticed and, you know, just also talking talking to the, the NCOs and the young officers is that, you know, we were just we didn't have enough armor on our vehicles to protect ourselves as we went out into the environment. It was simply just a matter of how we deployed into theater. Uh, but when conditions changed, we needed to change. So I, I came up with the idea of and, and it wasn't I don't I don't think it's my intellectual property. I mean, I I saw it happening, but I came up at least for our unit. I came up with the idea. Let's let's up armor our vehicles. You know, let's let's get steel in here. Let's do what we can to protect, uh, you know, our soldiers as they go out on patrols. And 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 basically that's where it ends. So it becomes my, you know, the idea that I talk to, you know, the the logistics officer, Romeo, and to the company commanders. And I say, hey, you know, guys, let's let's get this stuff going. And then at that point, the unit was so proficient. It, they just they just took it and let and 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 ran with it and they got all of our vehicles uh, up armored with doors and turrets and machine gun mounts and and all kinds of different creative solutions and I frankly I give all that credit to them I mean I you know you one of the roles of a leader is establish an idea have a vision but then your team executes that vision and the this team was phenomenal at that and. You know, I tell a funny story later on in the book about when we when we were redeploying. Maybe we'll get to it, but um, you know, it's about actually taking that stuff off of the vehicles when we get back to Kuwait in two thousand four. So um, I'll leave it at that. But it, it's about the team. Yeah, absolutely, great point. But it was uh, your vision that got that started. So I I just wanted to make sure I highlighted that. One other thing relative to the intelligence capability of, of the unit. And how important information from a walk-in was relative to the location and the mission against Saddam Hussein's sons. You know, somebody could have just ignored it, but that didn't happen. Can you talk a little bit about that, Bill? So we had, you know, we had a couple of missions in this battalion. You know, one of them we've highlighted, which was the long-range surveillance mission. Um, but the other mission was the intelligence mission. And um, we, we had um, teams from our battalion, from a company in our battalion, specifically assigned all over the country, supporting various divisions and and regimental combat teams, uh, or what we called uh, uh, the the ACRs, the Armored uh, Combat Regiments. But um, I'm sorry, the Armored Cavalry Regiments. The the cavalry guys are going to get mad at me for screwing that up, so I need to correct that. Um, but we had teams all over uh, Iraq functioning in that fashion as, as um, we call them uh, THTs, tactical human teams. And in this instance, uh, this team was assigned to a division in the north, um, and they did take in uh, someone that walked in that wanted to give information about um, the whereabouts of these, of these two peoples, in this case, Saddam Hussein's sons. And, at that point, the the rest is history. Everyone knows the story and and how that all unfolded. Uh, but yeah, we were extremely proud of the small part we had in that. Um, but we also think it was a, a very important part. 
Absolutely. And the, the attention to detail and the recognition that something like that was important uh, and moving that up the chain for action was, was critical to that success. Before we leave the operational mission at Abu Ghraib, can you talk a little bit uh, about the long-range surveillance teams and the forward deployment and how important that was to the mission? So the um, thank yeah, that's a good question. So the the, the long-range surveillance company in this battalion was was a core headquarters capability. So we were assigned to Fifth uh, Corps, commonly known as Victory Corps, uh, and so we were the LERS, what's called the LERS C. So LERS core. There are LERS Ds as well, so LERS uh, uh, units in divisions. But we were specifically a capability of the core at the time. And um, basically, uh, these are infantry unit. This is an infantry unit that that does um, early warning. It does um, surveillance. It does patrolling missions. It has it's it's a forward presence uh, in any type of organization or operation. So, you know, really one of the, the first type of organizations that are involved in combat operations, we call it inserting, um, inserting them early and uh, forward of friendly units. So a really a really tough mission. Um, most of most of the uh Officers, NCOs, and soldiers in this type of organization are Ranger-certified infantrymen, um, and their their mission is dangerous. They 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 are the eyes and ears um, in early combat operations for the Corps, and then later, as the mission changed for us in Iraq, um, they became um, what we called a counter IED, counter mortar patrolling organization and element, um, trying to give us early warning on on some possible attacks. I'd like to, to switch a little bit now to a little bit of discussion around how important logistics is to an army. And you had an acronym I really liked in the book called uh, VANI, if I have that right. Uh, and can you talk a little bit about that? You, you talked about the mayor and how important bartering and honesty was with the locals. Thanks for thanks for bringing that. So Van, Vanny is actually Bob saying it's uh, it means value added, no issue. Um, it's a great it's a great way to say, um, you know, you're just you're you're going to do your job and you're not going to complain about it, right? I mean, it's sort of the simple way of of bringing it uh, to light. But logistics, you know, there's a famous quote about logistics, and I'm going to get it wrong, but I'll get it, I'll paraphrase paraphrase it, um, but uh, it's something that goes like this. Tactics is for amateurs. Logistics is for experts. Um, everything about the Army is, is and the Army success is about logistics. Um, you know, and in my case, in this unit, I had a logistics officer that was just outstanding and completely understood it. Um, so he was able to resource us you know, all the time and, and keep the unit functioning. And, and it goes back to even the early days in Balad when we were simply trying to to find uh, sandbags to put around our tents so that we could protect our sleeping areas. And and let me explain that for a second, because that's, that's kind of 
interesting to understand. We would build sandbag barriers uh, along the perimeters of all of our tents just to the height of where someone was sleeping. So if you're sleeping on a cot, then the sandbags simply went two levels above where your cot was at so that it would protect you from any shrapnel that would come in from the sides of the tent. And so it wouldn't obviously protect you from something that came in the top of the tent, but it would if there was shrapnel flying around um, you know, at that level while you were sleeping or resting. So, you know, things like that, you know, Romeo did a great job of, of, of uh, figuring out. But what we did in this, in this battalion was we leveraged um, the local population. We had, we had three Iraqi contractors that, that would work for us. Um, you know, they would help us with services. They would, they would go to places we couldn't go. They had more freedom of movement into Baghdad and other places to get um, certain things we might need. Um, but in the book, I highlight specifically one, one story, which I think it, it just highlights the character of people and of, of human beings. And we had a contractor, his name was Amar. And I had, we had asked him, Romeo and I, Romeo and I had asked him to go to Baghdad and have a, a tarp made so that we could put shade over our mechanics who were working on on vehicles in the sun. So we wanted to shade the work area at Abu Ghraib with a, a really large tarp. And um, Amar went went to Baghdad and he had the, the tarp made. Uh, we said, okay, and he brought us the tarp. So then we gave him a basically a receipt that he could take up to Balad where the contracting office was at in the finance office. And he could collect his, his payment for having the tarp made and you know his labor. And so the tarp to in total was $2,500. And so Amar um, went to, we gave him his receipt after he delivered the tarp. He went up to Balad to get paid and the finance office paid him $25,000. So he came back to us immediately and told us there was a mistake in payment and gave us the money minus his $2,500 so that we could return it to the to the army finance system. Now, if you think about this, he could have immediately just took that twenty five thousand and faded away into the landscape of Iraq and never come back to us again. But what it did for us is it validated our human connection with the Iraqi population and the people we were working with while we were in Iraq in this time period. And it also it also gave us a sense of trust as well, because he was completely honest with us that he had been overpaid for this specific um, uh, mission that we had asked him to accomplish. And um, we, we were uh, just overwhelmed and shocked by, by uh, his honesty and his ability to, to come to us and trust us. And he ended up staying with us for the entire tour. And then what we did when we were leaving is we we introduced him to the unit that was replacing us so that he could continue on and, and continue to have uh, employment with the U.S. Army while he was while he while we were in Iraq. One of the things I always thought about him that was really interesting was he was very simple about what he wanted to do. And one of his goals he used to tell me was he just wanted to buy his mother a, a freezer or a refrigerator for her house. And that was one of his goals for working 
you know, with U.S. forces and and helping us um, get some of the logistics uh, things that we needed that we couldn't get ourselves. Yeah, that that's a great story. You know, you're right. If he just decided that he was never going to go back, he would have been reaping the rewards of that difference, right? Well, I mean, absolutely. He would have, you know, again, $25,000 cash to uh, a young Iraqi contractor who's in his 20s. I mean, he could have lived on that for years uh, based on, you know, the economic environment at the time and those type of things. So um, it was a big it was a big risk for him. Uh, but what he was, what he did was, was the honest thing, but he also built the relationship with us that we, we wouldn't leave him. We weren't leaving him alone, you know, to, uh, to try to do all of it on his own. And, and, and obviously, uh, you know, it says something about him, but, but I also think it says something about the unit as well. Cause I think he felt connected and felt a part of it. Um, let me talk a little bit now, uh, Bill, if I can, about the the disc. And you you mentioned uh, that scenario that happened in the book relative to a disc being provided, uh, which formed the basis for a what the military calls a fifteen six investigation, which became known as the Abu Ghraib uh, investigation. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the uh, good news for me is, is uh, as a as a executive officer in that specific instance, I was on the periphery. Um, that was that was really what Bob, who was my uh, co-author on this this project, was he was trying to articulate. But what ended up happening is this disc came to be uh, reality. It had data on it. Um, it had other you know data in general could be. It had documents. It had pictures. Everything. Um, and it, it did, you know, su- support that 15-6 investigation, which is a common term for an investigation in uh, Army units uh, you know, to get to the bottom of something that may not be right. And in this case, um, we all know the story or the history of, of what happened before uh, the 165th got to Abu Ghraib. Uh, and, and in this case, really, Bob Walters... Um, led this effort for us as as a battalion. He also protected us as a battalion, and his and as a leader protected us from all of 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 the uh, investigation things that were happening surrounding Abu Ghraib. And it's one of the things that I like to to talk about with people is about how Bob stood up for the unit during that time. Even though we had nothing to do with the incidents of Abu Ghraib and our mission was to establish discipline standards and accountability and to fix Abu Ghraib, you know, at some point you still sort of get drawn into the investigation. And and Bob did all of that as the commander and and kept us focused on the primary mission, which was conduct operations, build security at Abu Ghraib and and uh, raise the living conditions for our soldiers while we were there. So all credit to him. I'd like to end with two areas that that I'd like you to dig into a little bit. January 2004, you you talk about the uh, intense rocket and mortar attack that happened at Abu Ghraib. Uh, 
can can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, absolutely. Um, so that that was a that was a turning point for us uh, in that in that deployment. We we uh, uh, in a timeline perspective. So everyone listening, you know, we were fully established on Abu Ghraib with presence of Romeo Qureshi. So I didn't talk about this earlier, but on that initial that day after we were told to go down and fix Abu Ghraib, I took Romeo Qureshi down there and I left him there to start building the infrastructure. And he was doing that by himself with the help of our Iraqi contractors. And so he was literally doing everything he could to get the infrastructure established so that I could go back to Balad and bring the battalion down there in total, you know, close to 400 soldiers so that we could we could walk into a functioning tactical operations center, a functioning uh, personnel center, all the things that we needed as examples to to get the mission rolling uh, on Abu Ghraib. In January, um, I had come back from uh, a patrol and on the way into the FOB, we had picked up, um, you know, um, a movie that we wanted to to watch with all of the battalion staff. We wanted to have sort of a team building event and, and watch watch a movie together. So I got with the communications officer and I said, hey, can you set up uh, something so we can view a movie and invite all of the staff, invite, you know, the, the personnel and the logistics and the ops and, um, you know, uh, the commo team and et cetera, et cetera. So a bunch of people. And um, and I think what you're asking me is about the uh, mortar attack. So I'll go. That's that's what I'm referring to here. We set up in a little room inside one of the uh, it's it's a room we had created with plywood, but it was inside of a textile, a former textile factory or a facility. And we we fire up the movie and we're into the movie only for a few minutes, maybe 15, 20 minutes. And and we get um, hit with mortars and rockets and and you know there are different different assessments of how many they were or what it was, but we think it was somewhere between you know ninety and a hundred uh, mortars and rockets within you know a couple minutes span. So it, it completely um, does a lot of damage on the fob. In fact, the the roof of the the building was was coming in and coming down on us, and and so at that point we went into uh, into our mission mode, which was CASI back, determining who was hurt and and doing all of our medical um, battle drills at that time. Once all of that was done and we did have several soldiers at that time wounded um, and there were other and there were actually people that were killed uh, in the compound uh, during that event as well. But once that was all done and we were at a point where we could uh, take a deep breath and then and then do an AAR, which is an after action review of, of how we operated. I said to the to the commo officer, I said, hey, let's fire the movie back up um, and and um, get everyone back in here so we can get back on the on the horse or the bike, as they say, so that uh, people are a little comfort more comfortable. So uh, the surprising point of all of this was and the funny point is when I went back over to the place where we were showing the movie, Everyone that had come back to watch the remainder of the movie was sitting in the room with their flak vests on and their helmets. So it was really funny. Yes, I have a vision of them sitting around waiting for the movie to come back. That's a great story. And I'd like to end with um, when you, uh, you obviously change of mission happened. Now you're back in Germany. 
your tour was ended there, and and now you're getting back together with your family, and knowing that uh, your wife Dana and your and your two daughters were handling things on the home front exceptionally well, and then you came back, and now we're trying to get to normal. No, yeah, thank thanks for for asking that. It's a it's a great point to bring up. Um, at this time, so the the army was not. Uh, well, it was our, we were OIF-1, so we were the first units to deploy into combat into Iraq at this time. Um, and the concept of family reintegration was new to everyone. And we didn't know what it meant and we didn't know what it looked like. Um, and a lot of families uh, struggled with it, right? And, and it goes back to my comments earlier about the strength of the soldier is really the all the people standing behind him. Um, and so in my case, I had a very strong wife uh, and my children were, uh, were resilient and acclimated uh, to the German environment by this time. And I was walking into an apartment that I had really never seen. I was walking into uh, her, her daily routine and her organizational structure that I didn't know. Um, and I, I was a disruptor <laughs> at that point. Um, and we talk about it all the time. And there's a part in the book um, where a friend of mine who read the book, he called me and he said, hey, the most prolific thing that I that I uh, really want to highlight in this book is when Dana uh, mentions that she cried because you made her coffee. So yes. I, I think, um, you know, just that simple um example really exemplifies what it means to go to war to come back and then to to reintegrate with your family well now we got a lot better later on when i deployed again with other units and then later in my career i was a battalion commander back in iraq um, in 2010 and 2011. Uh, we had a really good programs we had really good programs and plans on how to reintegrate our families. And we also had a lot of experience. So my wife as a battalion commander wife later on was able to help the young wives and, and spouses. It's not just women, it's men as well, help, help support their soldier come back. Um, so we got better at it, but in this time period, I mean, we were crossing new ground. Um, and again, some of these little um, nuances we talk about in the book, I think people should just pick it up and read it. Um, you know, uh, another friend of mine wrote me and said, you know, Bill, what you've given us in this book is is inside baseball. You you're you're giving us inside baseball that we don't know out in the private sector or in the civilian world. And, and thank you for that. And so that was one of the best compliments I've had. But again, all all credit to my wife, Bob's wife, and all the wives and husbands that supported their soldier on the re-entry back because it isn't easy. It's not easy. Well, well said, Bill. And uh, I want to end this by letting folks know that you were awarded the Bronze Star for your combat uh, service in the entire Iraq theater, as well as the Combat Action Badge for that incident that you talked about in January 2004. And again, I want to thank you for your service. Uh, it's been my pleasure to be here and my honor to be here with you today. 
Hey, thanks a lot, Brian, and 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 thanks to Emily and, and Rain uh, for taking the time to hear the story. Um, thanks for reading the book. It's it's an honor for us to share this story. We, Bob and I, and, and Paul, our writing partner, we're we're grateful for that, and uh, thank you very much. Bill Edwards is a Rain Network member and the author of Inside Abu Ghraib: Memoirs of Two U.S. Military Intelligence Officers. The book is available on Amazon. Brian Lynch is the executive director of safety and security at Rain. We are a risk intelligence company that provides access to critical insights, analysis, and support to ensure business continuity and resiliency for our members. Find out how Rain can power your business to success. Visit us at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.